Fighting Through, Episode 28 A Tribute to the Late Wilf Shaw I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of these podcasts is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear memoirs and memories of veterans connected to Dad's War in some way, and much more. This is an unplanned and sadly unexpected episode. I'm very sorry to say that Wilf Shaw passed away recently, at the age of 98. That's the Wilf Shaw who's regaled and entertained us with so many tales of World War Two. So this is beyond doubt going to be the most difficult episode of the show that I've ever produced, and I just hope I can do Wilf justice. I'm going to let his very good friend Leslie Littlewood explain the circumstances just as she wrote in the World War Two Talk dot com forum. It's with great sadness and a heavy heart that I have to report the passing of Wilf Shaw, aged ninety-eight. My dear friend and veteran of the 6th Green Howards. His family have told me he passed away very peacefully in the early hours of this morning, Wednesday 21st of March 2018, in hospital. He'd enjoyed exceptional health for his age until a few weeks ago, when the breathing difficulties he'd had trouble with during the past 18 months worsened quite dramatically. I visited him at home in Oldham just less than two weeks ago, and even though he was quite unwell, he still managed to have a cheerful smile and a warm welcome for me. As usual, we chatted and laughed, and tried to put the world to rights, and he never lost his sense of humour. He first contacted me through the forum around the autumn of 2012. I don't know why he messaged me in particular, maybe he'd been browsing the forum as he was a lurker, not a poster, but probably wanted to make contact with someone whose father had served in World War II also. We messaged and emailed regularly, and finally met at his home in February 2013, just before his 93rd birthday. Wilf was a true gentleman with a very dry sense of humour, and I always enjoyed the stories he told me. He could recall most things, names of men he'd served with and the places he'd visited. We didn't always talk about his war years, in fact we often discussed the latest news and politics. He was an avid reader of books and newspapers, and had always something to talk about. So I think in the five years I knew him, we were never short of conversation. Wilf was always very generous with his time. Regular forum members will recall our few meetings with Paul Cheel at the Café in Debenhams in Manchester. He never seemed to tire of Paul's questions and queries about his time in the Green Howards, and the stories Wilf told were always told with some funny little anecdotes which had Paul and I in stitches, and I do often wonder what the staff in the café thought we were getting up to for the hours we sat in there. There are so many things I could say but can't put into words right now about the wonderful gentleman Wilf was, but I feel privileged to have met such a kind man and I'm proud to have called him my friend. R.I.P. my old soldier friend. I shall miss you very much. Leslie I'd like to add my own personal comments to Leslie's. Um, I too feel so very sad at Wilf's passing. 
I was surprised to find when I checked that I've corresponded with Wilf since 2011 and met up with him several times in more recent years, sometimes with Leslie, who's been a stalwart friend to Wilf for a long period. In all those times, Wilf has proved to be a fantastic raconteur and he had an impressive recall of all his exploits, the dramatic, the tragic and the funny. He had a very full war and fought as a signal with the 6th Battalion, the Greenhowards, 50th Infantry in the British Army. He fought in many campaigns, including fighting for Monty's 8th Army in Alamein, Wadi Akaris in Tunisia, Sicily and of course Normandy. He was wounded twice and still returned to battle. In recent years, Wilf was awarded the Légion d'Honneur, by the people of France for his services in Normandy in 1944. I bless the day I met Wilf, and I'm thankful that I could chat with him as much as I did, for talking to Wilf was the next best thing to speaking to my own late dad, also of the 6th Green Howards, and who fought in most of the same battles as Wilf. Thanks to the inspiration for my podcast I received from Dad and Wilf, I've been privileged to receive several other war memoirs which I've been able to cover in this podcast, including the letters of Fred Zilkin, a best pal of Wilf's. Wilf once said that someone reckoned he was the last surviving Green Howard who fought in the Second World War. Well, I recently heard from the Green Howards on this very point, and Wilf was very nearly right, because the information I've got from the Green Howards is as follows. We do know of another two veterans who are still living. Ken Cook from York, and Ernie Jackson, who is an in-pensioner in the Royal Hospital Chelsea. There may be veterans we're not aware of. Now the Green Howards will be placing an obituary to Wilf in the Green Howards magazine. Meanwhile, I can think of no better tribute to pay to Wilf than to cite the words of Fred Zilkin in one of his letters to Wilf, in which he said, You were never in a panic, Wilf. I remember when you came over to the mortars, you were composed and didn't give a damn about enemy shells. You were always a rebel, Wolf, and it was those types of blokes who won this bloody war for us. If it had been for me, the war would still have been going on now. You were always getting 28 days for something or another. You were a soldier. They, whoever they were, said you weren't a soldier until you'd been wounded at least once. You qualified, Wolf, twice over. Listener, I want to celebrate Wilf in this episode as well as mourn him. There have been comments and tributes coming in from all over the place and I'm posting them all in the show notes. I'm going to read a few out now followed by a number of the best clips from my interviews with Wilf. I know everyone listening to this news will be sad but I also know that Wilf wouldn't have wanted that to last long so I'm going to try and end on a positive note to reflect the attitude to life that Wilf always seemed to display himself. This one's from Steve Mack in the worldwar2talk.com forum. Very sad news, Leslie. I know that especially you and Paul Cheel knew Wilf well. It's always difficult to know what to say about World War II veterans you meet whether in person or just on this forum who pass. They're in fact just ordinary people 
who lived in extraordinary times and did extraordinary things. Our lives today would all be the less without them and their deeds. All of them are or were modest. I guess it's just a case of chin up, pick up your kit and march on. That's what Wilf did. He missed 50 divs BEF sojourn at Dunkirk, but was with them through the Western Desert Campaign, the Gazala Gallop, El Alamein, Mareth, Wadi Akarit, then to Sicily, and then D-Day on Gold Beach, through to Operation Market Garden and the island near Nijmegen. Paul's father was also with the BEF, and then with 50 div all the way through, no British infantry division did more for this country than 50 div. It's hard to feel worthy in contrast with the soft lives we have now. But Wilf and all the guys who served in World War II earned that for us. I will never forget them. R.I.P. Wilf Shaw, 6th Battalion Green Howards, 69th Infantry Brigade, 50th Northumbrian Division, Great Britain. Best, Steve. Very sorry to hear that Wilf has gone. I didn't know that he'd gone all the way from Gazala to the island, but as a historian of 50 Div, who knows the casualties suffered along the way, I can't imagine that many in the 50th could have matched that. And to think that he not only survived all that, but lived on for another 70 plus years, that's truly extraordinary. Some blokes are born blessed, it seems. Alan Converse. As a veteran, Wilf lived to be a grand old age and was able to recount and pass on his personal experience of serving his country. At one time it was common to meet and work with many who had military service during the critical times for the country. Those numbers are dwindling from a time when the British Isles were threatened to be overrun by the New Order, June 1940, a time when Britain alone was a free nation in Europe. Future uncertain, and it must have featured largely in the minds of all who served or who were constricted. Future uncertain, and it must have featured largely in the minds of all who served or were conscripted. Wilf represented those young men and women who were called to arms to serve in what was a largely civilian army. Wilf's photographs indicate a man who appears to be jovial character and at ease with the passage of time. It must have been a pleasure to know him. Rest in peace, Wilf. Harry Ree. All the above tributes were from the World War II Talk Forum. Here's a few more from Facebook and Twitter. Well, I guess we can't trespass forever. I wish Wolf could have tested that theory. Loved his stories. Greg Waydirt, Illinois, USA. A life well lived. Thanks for sharing his stories with us, Paul. R.I.P. Wolf. Kevin Scotland, UK. R.I.P. Truly enjoyed your talks with him. Root, Netherlands. I'm truly sorry to hear this. Wilf lived an incredible life and was one heck of a storyteller. I will miss him. Thanks for helping Wilf get his stories out there, Paul. Fair Pineda, USA. May he rest in peace. 
I loved listening to his stories and anecdotes. Thank you, Paul, for bringing his life story to so many of us. Eamon Walsh. Sorry to hear the sad news, Paul. He was a lovely man, and if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have found that photo of my dad on the internet. Teresa Stoker. And this one's by email. A sad, sad day, and I will miss him so much. Being gutted today, Leslie Littlewood. Okay, that's the sad part of this episode over with. I'd somehow like to move on to a celebration of Wilf himself. There have been some fantastic stories of Wilf's war coming out of this podcast, and I want to share the best of him with you. And I'm going to go big with the music too, because I love the music I chose for this show. (laughs) That's why I chose it. So I hope you'll enjoy it with me at various points. When I first heard from Wilf in 2011, this is how he described himself. I'm Wilfred Shaw, ex-6th Battalion the Green Howards, and served with them from late 1940 to June 1946. It was after Dunkirk when I joined the battalion. They were at Marston House in Froome, Somerset. I sailed on the Multan to North Africa in June 1941, and served in North Africa at Gazala in May 1942 in a rifle company, where I was wounded in my left foot in the fighting around Tobruk, and was in the 15th Scottish General Hospital until just before El Alamein. I went into action there, this time as a signaller attached to the rifle company, and I was wounded again and had to spend another spell in the 106 South African Field Hospital. I left hospital and went back into action at Wadi Akarat in southern Tunisia until Rommel was driven out of North Africa. I then took part in the invasion of Sicily landing at Avila on the 10th of July 1943. After the conclusion of the Sicily campaign, we returned to England, Riddlesworth near Thetford in Norfolk, then up to Loch Fyne in Vereri in Scotland to train for the invasion of Normandy. I then moved down to Boscombe and got married to Dora, my first wife, who was also in the armed forces. I was married on 10th of April 44, Easter Monday. We married at the register office in Oldham. Ten days compassionate leave with my wife, then back to Boscombe. I never thought I would see my wife again, but I was remarkably lucky. I took part in the invasion of Normandy, but didn't land D-Day, it was D-2 when I landed, and I was signaller with support company, along with Fred Zilkin. I was signaller to the anti-tank platoon, and was in the fighting right up to the Arnhem operation when 50 division were broken up and I was sent to Warren Point in Northern Ireland. I came back to England and had a cushy job at Pickering in Yorkshire on the switchboard with my old mate Fred Zilkin. With six months left to serve, I was sent to Cyprus until D-Mob. Something I could have done without, because I hadn't seen my wife and child since getting married. But ultimately, it did finish and I got home to be demobbed on Thursday the 13th of June, both the day and the date exactly as it was when I was called up in 1940, six years to the day. That's the outline of things, but obviously a lot of unforgettable things 
happened during that time. Well, Wolf, you can say that again. Let's just review a few of these things that happened. These are in no particular order, but they're certainly the ones which made the most impression on me at the time. How's your hearing? Is it all right? I suffer from tinnitus. The odd word, you have to excuse me if I ask you to repeat something, you know. It's not definitely. Sometimes, like if I'm listening to television, it's a bit like sizzling bacon. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it. Do you understand what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. Does that come from the war? Yeah. Yeah, but part of my pension is uh, is for that. It's uh, that and PTSD, you know. So you have, you've, you've got PTSD as well from the, from the war. Yeah, uh, they, uh, I was classified as uh, uh, four counts, two uh, uh, shrapnel wounds, you know, and uh, PTSD and uh, the hearing difficulties. But uh, at El Alamein, that's a more frightening experience I've had during the war. I'm talking about the main one, the main on the, on the yes. 23rd of October. Right. How the hell I got through that, I just do not know. I, there was about the section advancing to this, uh, this challenge. And it must have been 50 or 70 yards away initially. Right. But we were behind a bit of a ridge here. And then we got the order to advance. And I was extreme right. Oddly enough, the chap next to me was another chap from Oldham yeah. called uh, Bill Diddle. And uh, these uh, breeders opened up on us, the Italian breeders. And uh, oh, it was bloody chaos, and we all hit the deck. Diggle next to me had been hit cross, cross here in his mouth. And uh, I flung myself on the ground and Put the women with steel helmet in the ground like that. Sure, I got a, a bullet straight through the straight through the front of the steel helmet, and it, it it knocked the metal back and dropped on the camouflage. And me, like a fool, I threw I threw the bullet away in a bit of a mad temper, you know. I put put my hand. You should have kept it as a souvenir. It was the following day after after the episode with the doings. The helmet. I was moved to another sec, uh, another uh, platoon, yeah. and uh, there was, I had to go into action again, uh, doing the same thing as I'd done the night before. Yeah. And uh, we were move, moving along, and, and uh, the shelling started. And flung myself on the ground, and the next thing I knew, my arm went round my head somewhere, and I'd been it in my armpit here and came out the front here. Yeah. yeah. So, Have you still got the scars from it? Yeah. yeah. And because you got wounded in the foot in the middle yeah, of the Yeah, the one in my foot, it went straight through my boot. Right. Straight through my boot and my, uh, the part that sticks down, that's called oscalsis. Yeah. Your heel bone, in another word. And such was the force, it went straight through and out the other side. To this day, I can't. I can't believe I got. I got through that. 
one or two foreboding stories from Wilf there. Thank you very much, Wilf. Um, I just want to come in here with a bit of feedback that I'm repeating from from a previous episode because it's so relevant to Wilf. It came from Faye Pineda from the USA on Facebook. And uh, Faye said, I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now and I absolutely love it. It is so exciting and humbling to listen to the stories of such brave souls. I can't get enough of Wilf Shaw. He's always got a joke. Well, thanks, Faye, uh, for writing in on that. And if we wanted a prelude to one of the funniest stories Wilf's ever told, then that's it. And I'm now going to give you the latrine story. Wilf's on guard in the desert and playing around with his rifle, trying out what he calls first and second pressure on the trigger. I'll let Wilf tell you what happened next. I'll tell you something that's happened. It probably isn't worth repeating it any doing it. All right, I'm uh, I'm still afraid of the long arm of the army, you see. I'll tell you something that's happened. We stood to one night at Gazali. And I'm stood in a trench with Peter McKenna. And we used to stand for an hour at stand two at night, you know, certain times, stand two. And uh, my rifle, and uh, I was doing a pretend, doing, you know, aiming, supposing that were... Just lining your gun up. I I was trying the, what do you call the, first and second pressure on the figure. Right. Anyway, I'm pointing this at the latrine, you know. <laughs> and all at once, I must have pulled the trigger too bloody hard. And, the, and I, I fired me. I, I fired. I fired a shot off, you know. Right. And there was bloody panic. Panic, and Sergeant come and "Did you hear a shot?" <laughs> And I said, yeah. He said, well, what? I said, over there. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the funny part was, all he had to do was pick up, pick, take my rifle off me and feel at it. And he, and he'd, he'd, have, he'd have known yeah, the heat. Because yeah, the, the yeah, barrel was still yeah. warm. You know. Maybe he uh, gave you the benefit So of I remember times, yeah. he booed off and Peter McKenna said, yeah. he said, we're a bloody stupid sod show, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I thought you were going to say you shot somebody so in the backside. I, I hesitate to tell that to anybody. But I'll tell you what, the next time I went to the latrines, it, uh, it proved the accuracy of my uh, doings. There was a bu- actually a bullet hole right through the latrines. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what food do you recall eating most in the often? Army. Yeah, in the army. I remember we got these tins of... Uh, Bacon that were sent, you know, sealed in, in tins, really great lumps of bacon and then bully beef, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what do you tend to eat? Do you have? We, we got so much bloody bully beef, bully beef for everything. Yeah. Do you eat it? used to try and disguise it with <laughs> bully beef buttered, bully beef stew. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh dear! Do you eat bully beef now? Is that is it corned beef really? Is that, I remember. Is that corned beef. Oh, with ginger rights. Where was it? 
I forget where we were, I think we were up in tune this year. And we're eating out of a mess tin, and all at once, Ginger pulls this out of his mess tin, and it was, it was a bloody centipede, you know. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's not, that's quite good really, because if everybody <laughs> wanted a leg, there'd plenty, plenty to go around. Uh. We had, to, we had to come out, we were ordered to come out on parade. Right. Dress nothing. Naked, you know. Right. And the MO come around. Right. And we had to line up. Like yeah. So he, ins he was going along inspecting, you know, and uh, yeah. lifting your testicles up with a, you know, so, like... With a lolly, lolly stick or something. Uh, <laughs> and uh, all the ones... The bloke, he, he came to the bloke next to me, it was Gus Parks, Gus Parks, right? right. And he, he, he jammed up like that. So all I want to get it, this man say, remove that. So I looked at him. Yeah, there was a, a tick buried under his skin, on the, near his armpit. So I managed to uh, get this bloody tick, like, you know. Right and flung it away and this M.O. come bouncing back he said what what did you do with the chick I said throwing it away find the bloody thing he said and kill it you know oh god so I was crawling around on the uh, doing and it, what went through in mind was it how the bloody hell can I find a chick among this lot you know 180,000 square mile of desert sort of thing you know and anyhow, in the end, I, I pretended uh, I'd found it and I banged it with a stone, you know. Like that, you know. <laughs> I never found a bloody chick, you know. So. But yet you found three more under your armpit later <laughs> from, from routing around in the grass. <laughs> I'd, I'd been wounded, when I was wounded my first time in foot, and I was moved down to uh, 15 Scottish in Cairo. Right. So in the middle of Cairo, and when we were getting better, we, were, we went out in twos and threes. Yeah. I remember we, the the buses or trams or whatever, I can't remember. They were absolutely, they were hanging off the side, on top. And, and right. if, if you got on one of those, you you were lucky if you got off with with all the possessions you got on with, you know. So I can remember one bloke. He was hanging on to something, and the bloody wristwatch disappeared off his wrist. <laughs> so they got off, and he said the most aggravating thing was he said they got off the tram and they were going out into Cairo and yeah. uh, the. The first corner, there's a bloke there with wristwatches all the way up. One of wristwatch, Johnny, you know. <laughs> he wasn't trying to sell him his own wristwatch, was it? <laughs> that would have been an insult, wouldn't it? <laughs> I can remember getting 28 days once. Uh, for, that was for uh, impersonating an officer. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Tell us about that. I don't know about this one. It, it's happened in Cyprus uh, before we uh, went up to Iraq, you know, that before. And just for a joke, I was on guard this night. And uh, I found it was in the officers' quarters in Cyprus. 
where, where the officers came. And there was a, there was an officer's uh, coat hanging over a chair. So I'd left my mate, you know, we, we, we used to do pairs. We used to patrol in pairs, you know. Yeah. So I told him I was going somewhere. Anyway, I found this coat hanging off his coat. And I picked it up and put it on. Walked smartly back to my mate and had him stood to attention and uh, one thing and another, you know. We just guess what's going to happen, can't we? But in the end, uh, the humour of it all got me and I, I, I burst, I had to burst out into laughter, you know, and uh, he recognised, he, he called me a name which uh, I don't repeat really. <laughs> So you didn't, this was your pal you were doing but this to. I got found out about it. Um, somebody, somebody saw me and I ended up on a charge. And uh, they exaggerated things a bit and, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't playing a practical joke from their point of view. It was, it was impersonating an officer. Oh, yeah. gosh. And, uh, the outcome was that I got 28 days pack drill. I remember this particular day and was like, what's that in the distance, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and it, was ob it, it was obviously the sandstorm and then it hit us. Yeah. And everything filled with, with, with sand, you know. And the one thing you had to look after was, uh, in such circumstances, was the yeah, Lee Enfield rifle, you know. Right, yeah. You had to keep that covered, like, you know. I remember this, the uh, sergeant saying to us, like, uh, telling us about if anything like that happened, he said, treat your rifle better than you would treat your wife when you're married. He said, it was a question of throwing your wife out of bed or the... Uh, Lee Enfield rifle, you threw your wife out, you know. <laughs> when we were first went in to ask all the specialist signalers and brain gun carriers, MT, we were all put into uh, the, our bed were the horses' stables. And uh, <laughs> Over the, the name over at the stable I was, was Farmer. And we were tuned to a thing and uh, uh, I'll tell, tell you what my mate said. He said, I can just imagine this horse and all bollocks and backbone, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you never did get to see it. No, we, we, no. Didn't, we didn't see any of the horses. The horses had been taken out. But uh, that was the accommodation that they gave to us with the horses yes. stalled. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Presumably it had been cleaned out and it was fresh hair laid for you. <laughs> I'll tell you one incident that has occurred when I was with the uh, signaller as the anti-tank zone was the incident with the radio where I put it on top. Yeah. And I had me radio on top of the trench. Yeah. You were in the Germans trench. were firing kept firing periodically at intervals of uh, two minutes. You could hear the thump in the background. And I would lay there and chiming in 
and the time was getting less and less between the explosion I could hear, the uh, discharge of the uh, the discharge at that end, and the explosion at this end, and the time was getting less and less, and I estimated it wouldn't be long before. Uh, uh, the next third from when I was listening from, I talked about three three from now, and the one that drops is going to be pretty close, you know. Yeah. And I had my radio on top of the trench. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. <coughs> there were, the time limit got less and less until this explosion. The shell burst almost on top of and blew the uh, radio. Yes. Uh, I got shrapnel through the radio. And uh, after I picked it up, and I thought, well, it can't possibly be working. But I got the Dog, dog seven, dog seven, they called my signals, you know. And back came the answer here you strength five, you know. And there were shrapnel through the bloody, uh, through the radio. Yeah. <laughs> and it still worked. Yeah, it still worked. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Dad saying in his memoir that it was freezing cold all oh, the time. Yeah. The one you might be talking about was uh, a scheme on uh, Exmoor. And uh, th there were some people killed on that. Right. I think they were run over by a tank. Uh, or a vehicle or something like that, I'd run yeah. over, you know. But trying to sleep, I, I remember there was Maurice Hancock, Henry Jeffries and myself, three of us, and we had one blanket between us. Right. This was on Exmoor. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we, we took it in turns to get the warm spot, <laughs> which, which, which was in the middle. In the middle, uh, right, yeah. yeah. So the two on the outside were freezing bloody cold, you know. You come from Oldham, and there's one thing you, you read in your, in, you said in your memoir that most of the lads in the battalion were from the northeast, but not entirely. There were lads from South Yorkshire, Scots yeah. lads, Cockneys, Welsh, Irish, and at various times I shared a dugout with a Welshman, a Scotsman, a Jew, and a lad from Gateshead. Ah, <laughs> so that's, you, right. that's right. Yeah. You covered the full uh, gamut of. I can remember his name, Gus Parks. He was called. Uh, that was the that was the um, the Geordie, yeah, the lad from Gateshead, right? Because Dad said in his memoir that he met a lot of Scots and Welsh and Irish, and he said yeah. it was yeah. uh, an education to be fighting alongside such lads. One of my best mates, uh, he he was eventually killed on, I think it was D16, right? Peter McKenna, and I shared a dugout with him. Uh, up at, up at Gazala, I shared a dugout with uh, Peter, right. and I, I've written somewhere that, that we, we shared more than a dugout. We, uh, we shared uh, each other's letters, uh, right. shared each other's uh, uh, concerns in life, you know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he was eventually killed. Good soldier, good soldier, Peter. Conscientious. Uh, I still won the lottery, you know. You still do it? I, yeah. 
Michael, he says, well, 96 year old, he said, he's going on. He said, well, what the bloody hell would you do with it if you won it? <laughs> I said, well, that's easy, I'd give it away. No, I'd give it away. Would you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know so many deserving people, you know, yeah. people who really had it really bloody hard in life, you know. Yeah. And I'd, I'd just like to be the one who uh, turns around the life, you know. Have you got? Have you got your? Um, did you bring your French medal, your Legion Donner? Yeah, yeah. Let's have a look at that. Oh wow! So this is the medal that uh, the French government yeah. was awarding people who were in the Normandy campaign. So that's dear Mr. Shaw, I have the pleasure of informing you that the President of the Republic has appointed you to the rank of Chevalier in the Ordre National de la Légion d'Honneur. I offer you my warmest congratulations on this high honour in recognition of your acknowledged military engagement and your steadfast involvement in the liberation of France during the Second World War. As we contemplate this Europe of peace, we must never forget the heroes like you, who came from Britain and the Commonwealth to begin the liberation of Europe by liberating France. We owe our freedom and security to your dedication because you are ready to risk your life. I'm happy to enclose your insignia of Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur and once again extend to you my heartfelt congratulations. Yours sincerely, Sylvie Behrman. And that's from the Ambassador um, ambassador of France. Oh, Wolf, I can't help thinking that... Uh, well, you must be proud of all your medals that you got. Yeah. But this kind of... Coming well, so late in life... 70-odd years after the war, eh? Yeah, amazing. It's amazing. I think it's rather touching that they yeah. decided to do this. It really is. And what a fabulous looking medal this is. It's got a beautiful red ribbon. Um, with a, um, it's insignia on both sides, you know, both sides. Oh, wow, yes. French Republic on one side and... and you can't wear it in line with your uh, British medals, do you? Know? Can you not? Not at no. the same time. You have to, you have to wear it on the, on the other side. I've heard people say you can wear it underneath, oh, but okay. I don't think you can. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful medal. Well, I say, how, how touching after 70-odd years is it? So there we have it, Wilf's treasured Légion d'Honneur medal from the French people and the French government. And uh, if you want to see that medal in its full-colour glory, then pop to the show notes at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. And I've put various other pictures of Wilf together with his previous... Uh, recordings of interviews with myself and Leslie. I found it quite interesting to review all Wolf's clips and quips because it's made me recall something my dad once said about the war, that there were long periods of boredom interspersed with short periods of deadly fighting. And I think to some extent that's reflected in Wolf's stories because whilst there are plenty of scary episodes, it's obvious that Wolf and no doubt his comrades regularly sought relief from the violence in humour. 
and all those funny incidents are clearly ingrained on Wilf's memory with the same durability as any of the violent ones. Wilf, if you're listening, here's a medley of some of your best bits. I can remember getting 28 days once, uh, for, that was for uh, impersonating an officer. <laughs> Did you? That's Al Alamey, and that's the most frightening experience I've had during the war. How the hell I got through that, I just do not know. I got a, a bullet straight through, the, straight through the front of the steel helmet. I was trying the, what do you call it, first and second pressure on the finger. Right. Anyway, I'm pointing this at the latrine general, and all at once I must have pulled the trigger too bloody hard. This shelling started, I flung myself on the ground, and the next thing I knew, my arm went round my head somewhere, and I'd been it. To this day, I can't, I can't believe I got, I got through that. A patrol, a German patrol coming in the opposite direction, you know. They were wielding a field, piece of field artillery and pointing in our direction, like. The sand, the fine sand used to stick to them. And I remember looking round at the blokes and they were just like graven images, you know. One officer described Falaise. He said he was virtually walking on dead bodies. That's oh, the, Our bed were the horses' stables. I'll tell, tell you what my mate said. He said, I can just imagine this horse. All bollocks and backbone, you know. <laughs> I, I went through uh, I went through Norman there and the rest of the not up through Belgium and Holland, but uh, never got wounded again. I wounded twice in the desert. But, uh, well, you'd, you'd learn to keep your head down by uh, then. Very like that. <laughs> well, I remember one bloke saying to me, uh, talking to you like I'm talking to you now, and he said, "Did you ever?" Uh, did you ever experience an 88mm? You said about the, there was tremendous velocity. I said, yes, I'm, I heard an 88mm shell twice, I said. Once when it passed me and again when I passed it. There were lads from South Yorkshire, Scots yeah. lads, Cockneys, Welsh, Irish, and at various times I shared a dugout with a Welshman, a Scotsman, a Jew and a lad from Gateshead. Ah. We, we got so much bloody bullied, bully beef for everything. You used to, to try and disguise it with <laughs> bully beef battered, bully beef stewed. <laughs> Did you hear a shot? And I said, yeah. He said, well, what's it over there? <laughs> The question of throwing your wife out of bed and the uh, lee end for your rifle, you threw your wife out of bed. Fantastic, Will, thank you. Um, I'm going to crack on now. 
not with a war story, but a true sporting story. By now you'll have realised what a great sense of humour Wilf had. His favourite football or soccer team was Oldham Athletic, nicknamed the Latics, who are in Lancashire, England. And as any soccer fan will know, if there's a team you're entitled to ridicule more than the opposition, it's your own team. Wilf was no different, and this story relates to someone arriving late at the Latic Stadium for the start of the game. It's midwinter, cold, raining, and Oldham are propping up the bottom of the league table with not very good prospects of staying up. I told, I told you that tale about the Latics, didn't I? Oldham, Oldham Athletic. In the old days, you know, they used to have a ground and you had to go up like a turrison to the top yeah. to get to the top of the turrison, if you like. Yeah, you'd, from this side you couldn't see it, you know. Right. And this day, these chaps, he were late going in, you know, so. He's walking up, he's saying it, and he hears a tremendous roar go up, you know, before he got to the top. And they get to the top all excited. He said, have you scored? He said, no, pies have come. <laughs> I'm going to close now. Wilf, you did us all proud in so many ways and you're going to be sorely missed. But you've left a lasting legacy that people will be listening to for a long time. And I'll mention that Leslie and I have one more meeting we recorded with Wilf that's never been heard. So at some point in the not too distant future, I'll be rolling that out as well. I can't wait to listen to it myself because right now I've completely forgotten what we talked about. Once more, from Fred Silken. You were never in a panic, Wilf. I remember when you came over to the mortars you were composed and didn't give a damn about enemy shells. You were always a rebel, Wilf, and it was those types of blokes who won this bloody war for us. If it had been for me, the war would have been going on now. Fred Zilkin. Goodbye, my old chum. And in your own words, keep trespassing, wherever you may be. Listener, I'm now going to play what is normally my show intro, called Our Mighty Hearts, because Wilf surely demonstrated what a mighty heart he had in his long but all too short life. And for those of you who like my normal outro music in victory, stay listening, because what the heck, I'm going to play that as well. Have you scored? He said, no, pies have come. Did you hear a shot? <laughs> and I said, yeah. He said, well, what? He said, over there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd, I'd just like to be the one who uh, turns around the life, you know. It's been, been a long, interesting journey through life. It has. <laughs> it has. R.I.P. Private Shaw, W. 4753850 Called up on 13th of June 1940 6th Battalion the Green Howards Born 6th of February 1920 Died 
21st of March 2018, aged 98. Paul Shield saying bye bye now. <laughs>